Our scripture today is Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. For a certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humble and grateful that we can approach you, that we can be here in this place to worship you. May we honor you uh, in our hearts, in our minds, in our time here today. May you be glorified uh, as Mark brings forth the word, Lord. May we not be distracted, but may we have hearts and minds open to what you have for us um, that we will just honor you today in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Am I working, Jason? All right. Today's passage, Jude 3 and 4, is a difficult passage. It is not a... Uh, Let's just say Jude is pretty straightforward. This is not a passage where it speaks of love and mercy and grace and patience. That's true that as Christians that we are to, to show that and to have that. But at the same time, Jude looks at the other end of the spectrum. That he's seeing this church and he wants to speak to them of their common salvation. And we'll, we'll get into that in a second and what that means. But then he says, in essence, and this is the, the root of the meaning of this passage, he uses the phrase, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Now, in a boxing match, a contender is one who fights against another in the ring, right? We, even if we don't watch boxing, we can understand a boxing match is between two people who get into a square and decide to pummel their brains in, right? That's like the goal. They actually fight. Now, the referee is not a contender because he has no intention of fighting. <laughs> and if you've ever seen those videos of a referee who accidentally gets in the middle of it, it doesn't end up well for the referee, but he doesn't want to fight. He's just there to regulate things, right? Well, the same can be said of a boxer who enters the ring with no intention of fighting. In one sense, they're a passive observer, not a contender, because they don't want to fight. But to enter the ring passively when the other boxer is ready to fight is not going to end well for the passive non-contender. Does that all make sense? Right? Well, Jude is reminding and encouraging the church, don't be passive when it comes to the faith. Instead, they need to contend. They need to fight for the truth. <coughs> Excuse me. And again, that's, a <coughs> that's the focus of this, these verses. Contend for the faith. Fight for the faith, because where God's people are faithful, 
when God's people strive to be faithful to God, unfaithfulness will always strive to get a foothold. The enemy will always strive to undermine faithfulness. Always. No exceptions. And so working through Jude's argument, what we're going to do today is he defines faith. What are we fighting for? as the church. He defines the characteristics of who he calls ungodly people, so that's what we're fighting against. And then he defines what it means to contend for the faith, and that is what the fight actually looks like. So it's like, in other words, sometimes we say as God's people, I'm fighting sin in my life, but I'm not really doing anything to prevent myself from actually falling into sin. Guess what? You're not fighting sin. We're just saying it because it makes us feel better, but we're not really willing to fight. I want to fight. Okay, and you guys know me well enough, food, right? I love food, and I need to contend. I say, man, I am fighting to lose weight, and then I eat Panera, and then I eat cheesecake, and then I eat seconds of Katie's really good food. Am I really fighting to lose weight? I'm just speaking it, but I'm not really contending for it. So in order for the church to contend for the faith, Jude says, he uses the word the faith, we need to understand. What does he mean by the word faith? The faith, that is, is the message, the one message that was once for all delivered to the saints, he says, to the church. And what was that message? Well, it was the gospel message of Jesus Christ. These are all verses that we're familiar of. This is a basic, this is the gospel in basic language. John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which we have said a number of times here on a Sunday morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so in very simplistic terms, the faith that Jude is speaking of is the gospel message that all have sinned before a holy God, that sin condemns us to a punishment of eternal death in the fires of hell, but Jesus Christ willingly took upon himself that punishment for death, or of death, saving those who believe in him from the righteous wrath of God for our sins. These are the foundations of the faith to which Jude is referring. And he also describes it as a common salvation between himself and the church that he's writing to. So this points not only to like a single consistent message, the gospel message does not change from first century to even today, but it also speaks to their equal standing before God. In other words, those who believe the one message that was delivered by Christ's disciples, by the apostles— are saved just as much as the disciples themselves. So there's no hierarchy when it comes to salvation. Peter was not more saved 
than Paul. And Paul was not saved more than John. And John was not saved more than those who were reading Jude's letter. The church of the first century was not saved more than you and I, if we believe. There's one message, there's one faith, which makes one people on equal standing before one God. The message never changes. If you want to say, what is this never changes. The gospel message is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now this is important because to stray from this faith, to add or subtract from this faith, to say Jesus plus anything, or Jesus minus anything, is to twist the message of salvation. Which is exactly what these false teachers were doing in this church. They were teaching a message that leads not to a common and equal salvation before God, but to condemnation and judgment by God. Jude defines this judgment in the following verses by giving three Old Testament examples of the disobedience of God's people in the wilderness, the disobedience of the fallen angels, and the disobedience of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that last one especially, Sodom and Gomorrah, we got to keep that in mind. Now, we're going to go through that in a couple weeks, those three things, more in depth. But needless to say, these examples are meant to point to the severity of the consequences of believing in a twisted gospel. This is not, oh, you hurt my feelings. This is, oh, I will be destroyed forever, over and over again in hell. Very, very different. And huge consequences. And so if this false gospel has such dire implications, then we need to know how to recognize not only the twisted message, but those who are twisting that message. And so what are the characteristics of these false teachers. Well, Jude says it this way, certain people have crept in unnoticed. That these certain ungodly people have crept into the church unnoticed. Specific individuals have joined the church body wearing a spiritual mask. They proclaim their belief in Christ, and they act the part of a faithful Christian in such a way that the church doesn't take notice of their unbelief. And if you've been in the church long enough, I mean, not just Elm Creek, but the church, if you've been a believer long enough, and you've been involved in leadership in any form or any way whatsoever, you know exactly what he's talking about. That there are people who come into the church, they play the part, but they are not the church. This is where the description of a wolf in sheep's clothing fits well. They look like a sheep, and they smell like a sheep. But underneath, one is going to find the sharp teeth of a creature looking to devour the sheep. And so these individuals look and smell like a Christian, but get past the facade, and one finds an enemy of the faith looking to lead true believers astray or to devour those who have yet to believe and send them to the same place that they are going as teachers. These are ungodly people. 
These are Jude's words. This is God's words. He defines them as ungodly people showing no reverence or honor for Jesus Christ. Jude describes them using two words, perversion and denial. I told you, this is going to be hard. This is going to be tough stuff. Perversion and denial. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, meaning that they bend and they twist the grace of God, the salvation message, the faith, into something completely unrecognizable. What is the message of these ungodly people? If we are saved by grace through faith, then we can live as we please on this earth without any consequences before God. Jew tells us that their false gospel perverted the true gospel into sensuality. Now that word, sensuality, it means unrestrained sexual behavior. In other words, God's grace is so complete that he doesn't simply forgive sexually immoral behavior, but he encourages it. Such a teaching is a denial of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It's a message which denies the rightful rule and reign of Christ in what he commands of us and places ourselves on the throne. It's a denying the desires and passions of the one who demands and deserves to be called our master and Lord, our only master and Lord, and places our own desires and passions as the reigning law over our lives. Now we're going to get there in a minute. But the church today finds itself in a similar situation. There are many in the church who claim to be the church who are now teaching that sexual behaviors, such as homosexuality, are not only good for the church, but are celebrated by God as faithful. And to use the words of Jude, such a teaching is a perversion of the grace of our God. It's a denial of Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord, and it's the true church that the true church of God has to stand up and contend for the faith. Has to. Contend for the faith. Fight for the faith. Go to war for the faith. It's a word of action. It's a word of severity. It's not a word of passivity and gentleness. If inaction in the boxing ring has severe consequences, consequences how much more are the consequences from inaction against false faith? One brings about the loss of a fight and some bruises, maybe a concussion. The other brings about the spread of falsehoods and the eternal condemnation of souls. We who are the church of God cannot stand idly by and allow the perversion of God's grace and the denial of our King to take hold in our midst. But how do we do this? Are we supposed to show love and mercy and patience? Yes, absolutely, because we have been shown much love and mercy and patience. But what Jude is saying is 
something different. This is not somebody who's wrestling with sexual immorality or wrestling with their sinfulness and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. How do I do it? It is people saying, no, this sin is good and God loves it. He loves it when you disobey him so he can show you more grace. That is a perversion of the gospel. And we are to fight. We are to fight for it. But how do we do that? Well, thank goodness Jude does give us a little bit of counsel in this, some guidance in this. First, we need to know the faith. We need to know the truth of what God teaches in his word. What does this say? Not what do I want it to say, not what do I think it says, but what does it actually say? What was the message that, was Christ, that Christ delivered to the disciples, which they then wrote down for the church, which now speaks to us? It is not simply a head knowledge of the basic truths of the gospel message, but a growing heart knowledge of the deep riches of the character of God as revealed by him to us in his word. And the more that we dive into it, and the more that we swim in the truth of God, the more we come to know him, the more we come to understand him better. So first, we need to know the faith, get into the word, get into the truth, engross ourselves in it. Second, we need to recognize ungodly teachers and their ungodly teachings. I know I've used this illustration in the past, but it's, it's a perfect illustration for what this means. Um, I used to uh, work at like a, a summer theme park, and I'd stand at the front receiving all the cash. This was back when people used a lot of cash. <laughs> and you'd be handling... bills, $5 bills, all day long, over and over, 10-hour shift, handling nothing but money. Now, there was one day, a college kid showed up, and he handed me a $20 bill, and immediately, I knew it was fake. Now, don't be impressed, he printed it off on a computer, okay? I mean, I looked at it, like, seriously, like, and when I called the police and they came up, they go, well, how do you know it was counterfeit? And I handed it to them and they're like, really? Like, yeah, it was a poor counterfeit. But it was immediately, I knew it was fake. Why? Because I was handling the real thing over and over and over and over and over again. So when a false bill came in, I went, something's not quite right with that. There's something different about this one than all of the true dollar bills. Now, if we are growing more and more in our knowledge of God, if we're growing more and more in the faith that he delivered to us in his word, if we are striving to know more of God by reading his word, being sharpened by his word, growing in our understanding of his word, surrounding ourselves with people who desire the same thing and sharpening one another— then it is more likely that, you know what, these little red flags are going to pop up. They're going to appear when you hear false teachings. You're going to go, something's not quite right with that. Maybe I'm not quite sure what it is, but is that really what God's word says? Now let's let's go look at this. Is this Is this really what the message says? Is this really what the faith says according to God's word? And to go back to the example of homosexuality. Leviticus 18 speaks to the prohibition against homosexuality, which God calls an abomination 
or Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God, or Jude's words in verse 7, that such acts, like Sodom and Gomorrah, are unnatural desires. Throughout Scripture, over and over, that is how homosexuality is described. This is what God says. Nowhere in all of these pages does God encourage or celebrate in the most minute way any homosexual relationship. Now, he offers ways to fight sin, which homosexuality is, just as lying is, just as stealing is, just as lust is. He offers ways out. He offers power to fight. But we're talking about those within the church who actively promote such teachings. If we know the faith which God revealed to us in his word, if we are spending time in the authentic and the true gospel message as given to us by God himself, we are able to recognize the false teachings of those who within the church, who are within the church, who proclaim that God celebrates such relationships. Again, don't hear like, well, you kicked them out and you're all legalistic. We're going to get there in a second. But to call people out in the false teachings that twist and pervert the gospel message. Now, we may initially be fooled by the wolf in sheep's clothing, but eventually the wolf is going to begin to show his teeth, even if ever so slightly. The false teachings are going to slowly begin to reveal themselves, and when seen, then you fight. You contend for the faith. To contend for the faith, the church must know and recognize ungodly teachers, recognize ungodly teaching, but we must actually contend. We must actually fight for the truth. And one way to do this is to expose and to call out false teachings. Not in anger, not in a desire to look how much better I am. That's called arrogance. That's also a sin that the Bible deals with. But to call them out, to expose them. When someone within the church is blatantly speaking and teaching a perverted gospel, then we use the word of God itself to exhort and to correct them. Speak the truth in humility and love, but speak the truth nonetheless. Another way to contend for the faith is to strive to live out that truth in your own life as an example of godliness and the heart-changing power of the grace of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear of you that you, are standing, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel that you are fighting for. 
To live a manner of life worthy of that gospel is to acknowledge Jesus Christ, as Jude says, as our only master and Lord. This is not a legalistic obedience that one must obey Christ to be approved by, accepted by, and our sins forgiven by Christ. That is not the gospel message. You are saved by faith, by grace through faith, not by works, so that we cannot boast. There is no work that we can hold up which is sufficient to satisfy God's wrath for our sinful rebellion against Him, which is why we need Christ, right? And yet our obedience to Christ, our manner of life, which is worthy of the gospel of Christ, reveals that we love Him. It reveals that He is my master. To go to the false teachers and say, my master says this and you're telling me to do this, but I love my master and I will not disobey him. And I will stand against what you say is right because it is wrong. It is not what my master wants. Our works do not save us. They reveal who our true master is. Our way of living reveals whether or not we are the people of God and it distinguishes us from false teachers and false believers. Which brings us to the final way to contend for the faith. Later in his letter, Jude tells the church to save others by snatching them out of the fire. It's in verse 23. Now we're going to go deeper into that statement when we get there in the coming weeks. But in short, this means that we need to recognize, we need to distinguish between those who are false teachers and those who are wandering from the faith. Those who are deceived, those who follow these false teachers but don't understand or grasp that they're false teachers. That very same verse then tells us to show others mercy with the fear of God, hating even the polluted life that this false teaching has produced. In other words, as we tell the truth of the gospel message, those who continue to reject that message are those teachers who need to be removed from the fellowship of the church until they turn back to the true gospel. If we hear false teaching and we correct it and we go to the word of God and say, this is not my opinion, this is what God says. This is God's word, this is what he commands and it is opposite of what you say. And they say, I don't care. I don't like what it says. Or, well... Does it really mean that? I don't think it really means that. My God is a loving God. I've heard that a number of times. And he would never then tell people, in essence, to obey him. <laughs> Why would a God do that? Those people must be removed from the fellowship of the church. They must be removed until they repent and they turn back to the true gospel. And when that happens, guess what? The doors are wide open. We say, come. Worship our one master, our one Lord Jesus Christ with us. But there will be those who will be corrected by the truth, whom the Spirit of God is going to convict. It's going to change their hearts. They're truly going to stand up and fight against sin in their life. They may be really bad at it, 
But like any kind of workout, you got to start somewhere. And the more you work out, the stronger you get. The more you fight the sin in your life, you contend for the faith, the stronger that faith grows. Not because of you, but because of the Spirit working within you. And so there will be people that we will call out and say, that's not right. Look what God's Word says. And they will say, oh, yeah, you're right. But that, that's hard though. I know. I know it's hard. So let's, let's fight this together. Let's fight this sin in your life together. And you can help me fight my sin. Let the Spirit, or that the Spirit of God is going to convict and change their hearts. They're going to be moving more and more and striving more and more to live a life worthy of the gospel message, not to twist and to pervert it or to deny it. Those are the ones within the ranks of the church. Those are the ones who are to be shown patience, grace, and mercy, and love. Because guess what? That's all of us. That's all of us. How easily our hearts can turn that way. Now, ultimately, Jude is calling the church, again, contend for the faith. A church, a church that is passive, allowing false teachings to spread in its midst, is not fighting. They are like a submissive dog. A passive dog who, you ever had one of those dogs, you go up to pet it, and you know, what does it do? Piddles on the floor, because it's submitting itself to you in the negative way. It's not a good thing. That is the passive church when it comes to sin. But a church that is militant, putting down correction and placing themselves on the throne of salvation is also not fighting. They're like the guard dog who has a good growl, but he's all bark and no bite. You ever seen those dogs? They bark and bark, and then you walk towards them, and they run away. That's the militant church. But a church that is faithful, a church that is willing to be corrected by the truth of God's word, a church who calls out falsehoods not not from emotion or anger, but from the foundation of the word of God. The church who strives endlessly to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. The church that strives to encourage other believers to be faithful and to fight and contend for the faith. The church that removes the cancer of false teaching in their midst that is the church that is contending for the faith. That is the church that fights. And it's going to come with consequences. To fight for the faith makes Satan fight even harder. It makes unfaithfulness fight even harder. But if we as a church are founded upon the word of God and the truth that is found there and the striving to understand it and know it better, especially when it comes to the gospel message and not add to it or subtract from it, but to preach it unashamedly, to stand firm in the word of God, then what can Satan and the world take from us? 
They may take our lives. They may take our lifestyles. They may take our freedoms. But we have our one master and one Lord. And for all eternity, we'll be in his presence. We look to eternity, not to the here and now. And here, God says, through the words of Jude, contend for the faith. So, I guess it's just one simple question, and I'll end on this. Is Elm Creek that church? Is Elm Creek a church that will contend for the faith no matter what? Father, these are hard words. As always, your words, they can convict they expose our sinfulness. They expose the areas of our life that we are placing ourselves upon the throne. And Father, we hear these words in an unbelieving world. Satan himself are fighting for unfaithfulness to deceive. They are perverting the gospel message. They are twisting the gospel message And it is leading people to hell. So as as your church, may we stand firm in your truth to preach the truth out of love, but to fight none the less. To stand firm in you. To stand firm in your truth. To stand firm on your gospel. To unashamedly live the life that you are calling us to. To unashamedly Give of ourselves to you to, through your power, change the way we live so that we are in obedience of you because we love you and because you have saved us. Father, may we be known as a church who loves you and loves your word no matter what. We ask this, Father, in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our final song?